Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Um, again, my name is Natasha, um, and I'm just excited to uh, preach today. And my hope this morning is not necessarily to preach at you, um, but to explore this passage together um, and by learning from it and also from one another. I've been learning a lot um, in the past year since I've been in Durham. As of Friday, it was my one year being here in Durham. And there's been a lot of learning, a lot of good learning and a lot of hard learning. Um, I've learned quite a bit about theology, about the Bible, um, all the way to like working a soundboard at a radio station and then to like task managing, kind of, not really. Um, but I have a ton more learning to go. Like for instance, like at cookout, there's like 50 flavors. What is the best one? I've tried like 20 of them and there's so many. And I, I've, I, my favorites right now is like the peach cobbler, which I find so weird because really it's like canned peaches and vanilla wafers. Sorry to spoil it, but it's not really peach cobbler. Um, but there's like 50 flavors. So is this like a marketing scheme? I don't know. And then another question I have, I guess a North Carolina question, which maybe I can get your help with after service is what encompasses the word y'all? Like, like, is that like a, is that just like a two people? Is there a maximum? Is there a maximum of y'all is like stopped at a hundred? Um, or is it like gender specific? I don't think so, but like, I just need some clarification. So meet me after service, help me out because I'm real confused. <laughs> um, regardless, I have had a lot of learning to do in the past months. Um, as Brodian mentioned, this summer, I have the enormous joy to be working with Reality Ministries. And as he mentioned, it is um, a local nonprofit that works with adults with and without disabilities. I know some of us here have had experiences, probably far much more experience than I have, um, but you know the joys that it is at Reality. And as I've been reflecting on my time at Reality, I've also been reading Tattoos on the Heart by Father Greg Boyle. Father Greg is the founder and director of Homeboy Industries. You might have heard of this book. It is phenomenal, like seriously a phenomenal book. Um, Homeboy Industries is the world's largest gang intervention and rehabilitation program. It's located in Los Angeles. It's been going for a while now, and it's just an amazing book and an amazing program and ministry they have there. And this book, y'all, it's so good. I can't say this enough. I mean, if you're going to take away one thing, I mean, hopefully you take away the message. But if you have to take away, you know, like one tiny thing, this book is so good. It's so good. It's so, so good. Um, go out and read it because it's deeply wise. It's heart-wrenching and it's joyful all at once. He shares story after story of individuals he has made profound friendships with. A lot of them end um, left to be determined. Um, some of them end in joy, and unfortunately, some end in sadness and trauma and tragedy and despair. In this book, he writes this, the strategy of Jesus is not centered in taking the right stand on issues, but rather standing in the right place with the outcast and those relegated to the margins. And today I wish to explore what it means to be standing in the right place and how that might be a bit different than just a political ideology that we love to have. <laughs> Granted, this is a really an ongoing conversation, so I'm not going to cover this in you know, this short amount of time, but it is my hope as a fellow Oak um, person and as um, your preacher today that this is a conversation we continue to have, the fine difference between standing in the right place and some political ideology. 
I hope this is a conversation, again, we'll have as a church. And I think this passage, Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13, will help set the course. As Brody had mentioned, we are continuing with our series on Ezra, Nehemiah. We've been following this group of people who have recently returned from exile and their endeavor to build or rebuild the city of God. Ezra starts out by um, kind of explaining the building of the temple, the settlement, the blessing of the temple. And where we are now is in the fifth chapter of Nehemiah. They are now building the wall. Nehemiah took place after Ezra, as you might expect. Um, and it took around, place around 446 to like 433 BCE. But there's this sudden halt in construction. In the previous chapter, in chapter 4, Nehemiah was acting sort of like a wartime strategist. He was having to defuse a really scary external threat by careful wording and by successfully gathering his people together. Now, in this chapter, he's putting on his politician's hat, if you will, because now he's not necessarily facing an external threat, but an internal one. Scholars have really wrestled with Nehemiah 5, um, wondering why in the world it pops up in the middle of this construction story. A lot of people say Nehemiah 5 does not belong where it does. It interrupts the building narrative. Some wonder if Nehemiah 5 should be placed somewhere else, um, maybe in chapters 12 or 13, where eventually we'll get to as a much more of like correction of sins. Um, again, it just seems like such an interruption. But I personally think that this interruption in construction is precisely where it should be. Because chapter five's situation is dire. There is an unclear famine happening, not much information about this famine, it's just happening. And there is this outcry, a strong outcry from the community, specifically the impoverished in their community. Um, the Hebrew word for it, it's sedaka. Um, it is the same type of word, the exact word used to describe when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, that sort of outcry, their outcry to God. That's the exact same type of outcry that's happening here, an intense, a helpless, hopeless outcry. It's significant to point out that this is a communal cry. Um, it's really cool. Verse one, it says them and their wives. Um, some of the English translations say, especially their wives complained. Uh, thus, it is the whole impoverished community who are raising their voice in the tzedaka, this outcry. There are three major complaints that the people are facing. First, there is a lack of sustaining food, except for the little grain they can find, which leads to the loss of land, and eventually the desperate, horrible act of selling one's own children into debt slavery. In other words, this community is facing a severe loss in ownership. When the scripture mentions like ideas of interest in slavery, it might help to kind of like see what that means because um, it's a little bit different in our context. Well, except the charging of interest is actually very similar to how we have it. A percentage um, of what you owe is added in addition to what you are in REN debt. So, you know, 5%, 10%. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know what interest is. Um, except we find in the Old Testament that it is outright forbidden to charge interest to your fellow Jews. You can find this in Deuteronomy um, 23, 19, Leviticus 25, 35 through 37. And as for slavery, it looked a bit different too. Um, debt slavery was a common practice within this community. So I guess a question might be to readers, so what's the big deal then? You know, if it's already a practice they're having, what's the problem? 
The problem is this. The perpetrators are not some sort of outside group, but they are their own fellow Jews oppressing their own fellow Jews. Despite all of Ezra and Nehemiah's efforts to unite these people, the people oppress each other. People who were once slaves to foreign nations and empires are now becoming the slave owners, enslaving their own people. In particular, Nehemiah's complaint is against a very powerful group of people, the nobles and leaders, people who made it possible to make this wall. So it's a big deal. How do you go against the very people who are funding your project? Yet regardless of these people's status, he does not tread on this matter lightly. It is said that Nehemiah is very angry, very, very angry. This is an immediate reaction, and it's a bit different than maybe what you'd expect from Ezra. Um, Dr. Chapman talked a couple weeks ago on Ezra chapter 9, where Ezra um, reacts to a community sin by lamenting and by praying to God. But Nehemiah is outright furious. Um, yet it also says he acts after thinking it over, which is a very wise thing. And after thinking it over, he comes to the conclusion to call together the great assembly. And because he doesn't want to make this a private matter. Um, dealing with things privately will only get you so far. But he makes it a public spectacle, gathering all the leaders, all the nobles, and accuses them of what they had done wrong. And he demands these injustices to be fixed. Um, and that Hebrew word, it also means this very day. So immediately, right now, in verse 11. And this is also a really cool thing. You really don't see this in the Bible all that much. Well, maybe sometimes, but you really don't see this, at least nowadays. He publicly admits that he is part of the problem. In verse 10, he counts himself as part of the problem. He openly admits to lending money, and he calls himself out as complicit, uh, which is really amazing to see. And so how do the people react? Um, I guess, disappointingly, they are silent which I guess is a pretty common reaction to being accused. Um, like whenever you have kids, I don't have kids, but like whenever I was a kid or whenever you see kids and they get in trouble, either they kind of do one or two things, they love to make excuses, or they're just silent because they know what they've done is wrong. I mean, even as adults, we have things like pleading the fifth where we don't say anything. Um, we just say silent. And uh, disappointingly, I think, this passage doesn't have a big giant um, apology from these leaders. I think it would have been wonderful for me to read this. And they said, they went to the impoverished in their community and said, I'm sorry. I wanted that to be there, but it's not there. And yet they do repent in the way that they fix everything that they had done wrong, supposedly. <laughs> there are two aspects to this great assembly. This great assembly is not merely just a uh, political gathering, although it definitely is, um, but it is a religious one too. They call out the priests and make the leaders swear to an oath, a really big deal, to keep their promise, which makes getting out of this uh, promise really almost impossible to get out of. And he also curses the leaders um, and saying, if you try to get out of this promise, you'll be shaken off. Um, like God will shake you off, a uh, very intense curse. Um, therefore, the great assembly is not only a restoration of justice, but it is a covenantal renewal of the people's relationship with God and with one another. I think Nehemiah's problem at hand, I mean, he, there's plenty of problems, you can probably catch up on it, but like 
one of the problems at hand is that these Jewish leaders are relapsing into the very same thing that brought them into exile a while ago. By mistreating their own people and abusing their own people, they are not fearing the Lord. That, time, that, that word, fear the Lord, comes over and over again, and it has a strong meaning. And by not fearing the consequences of their behavior, again, they're just relapsing into that same thing that brought them into exile in the first place. And as I was reading this passage, I found myself so baffled by this. I was like, how could these people be so goofy? Like, what, what is happening? Like, why would they be doing this to their own people? I mean, this is so silly, especially to your own fellow brothers and sisters right after you'd gotten out of exile. I mean, it is just bizarre to think. I mean, not long ago, these Jews were slaves and servants to foreign nations. So how could they do this to one another? And also viewing this from a pure, like, theological, non-theological standpoint, like, for a, for a community to exist like this seems absurd. Like, what civilization would exist like this? How could they survive this? The enslavement and the mistreatment of the impoverished really feels like self-sabotage. I mean, how could they do that? And I say that, but while I was baffled by the story, I just had to take like a brief second to reflect and look at the news and realize, is this not the very same thing that we are guilty of? We are guilty of so much against our fellow people. Unlivable wages, gentrification, or more generally, this horrible housing market without much of a crease, increase in wages. The charging of interest, whether it's student loans or credit card debt, just to name a few. Modern day slavery, whether it's the exploitation for labor or sex. The prison systems, these horrible, horrible systems that we have where a felon goes to jail, often as an act of desperation, and then they serve their time, but they're continuously um, burdened by fees and lack of jobs and housing, which just bring them back to that same desperation that brought them into prison. I mean, the list could go on and on, and I would be so exhausted to just sit here and stand here and just uh, list them all out. We probably don't have enough time to do that. I'm sure you could come up with more. Will Durant, um, he's a 20th century American author and philosopher. He wrote like this 11 series um, set of books along with his wife um, entitled The Story of Philosophy. He writes, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself within. And as Americans, we are constantly afraid of outside threats. By one glance at the news, whether it is national news or whether it is local news, whether it's even in our own community right here, will tell you the whole cold, hard truth. We, as a nation, are in danger of imploding. We are in danger of killing ourselves physically, spiritually. Therefore, I think Nehemiah 5 is as timely as ever. Nehemiah 5 serves to remind us of two things. First, it beckons the question, where have we been complicit? This question should be considered on a lot of levels. And again, this we won't have enough time to even just do it today. Um, how have we, maybe as Americans 
or we as Oak Church or you individually, how have you been complicit in the wrongdoings that's been happening around us? Frequently, we don't act on things until it help, hurts us directly or hurts our families directly. And in the situation in Nehemiah 5, the poor being oppressed didn't necessarily affect Nehemiah. I mean, he was doing well financially, probably. Um, but perhaps this uh, construction of the wall maybe could have still happened. Maybe it could have still happened, even though the poor were suffering. But Nehemiah refused to continue building the walls around a heaping mess. Instead, he halted construction and stood up for the poor in his community. Are we also willing to halt construction from the projects and the wonderful things that we are doing in order to address a very real problem in our community? Maybe a problem far greater than building some sort of wall. Throughout chapter five, we hear the phrase, the fear of our Lord, even beyond what we just read. Nehemiah's outcry, or Nehemiah's response to this outcry, the Sedekah, is very much like God's response to our outcry, or maybe the outcries of those we oppress. God hears the outcries of his children and will attend. In what position do I want to be, do we want to be, when God returns and comes to rectify? Or are we just going to continue wearing that badge of Christian and not actually change? The second call to action is calling injustice out. Wrong is just wrong. Nehemiah's situation is a clear act of wrongdoing on so many levels that I mentioned. And especially now, there is more than enough in this world. But just like in Nehemiah's time, we constantly choose greed over basic human rights. And just like Nehemiah, calling out the injustice may, it may, may require us to call out those in high authority, those who are financing our projects. Um, he had to call out those, again, who are supporting the very building of his wall, their wall, the community's wall. And I feel like I have to clarify something, too. I, I feel like when you see the word call out injustice, I feel like at least I like it like a little shit. I'm like, OK, great. Like that's kind of virtue signaling. Like, OK, like what does it mean by, you know, calling injustice out? Um, but I do have to, to specify, calling injustice out does not necessarily, and it does not mean ranting on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, et cetera, nor does it mean uh, hiding behind some sort of pol political ideology or the correct political ideology, um, and that does not count as calling out injustice. Although I'm really guilty of this, I love to stand behind a certain political ideology and believe I have the correct stances on things. Um, and that I can just simply wipe my hands clean because at least I have the good thoughts in mind. Maybe I'm not doing the actions, but you know, I'm, I'm really supporting the right, right things in society. But Nehemiah shows that political ideology is not enough. Like we heard earlier from Father Greg Boyle, that strategy of Jesus, the strategy that of Nehemiah is not centered in taking that right stand on issues, but it is standing in the margins with those that are oppressed, those that are hurt, those that are outcast and relegated to those margins. Standing in the right place may look different for everyone. Um, I think it does, definitely. My time at Reality has, again, taught me so much. I have learned so much what it means to stand 
on the margins and stand in the right place. Not to say I'm perfect, I'm not. <laughs> There's definitely times where participants have called me out for certain things if I misspeak or say something wrong or accidentally exclude someone. So there's always room for improvement. But my time at Reality has really taught me what it means to stand in the right place. I'd encourage everyone to take a pause and think and determine if you're standing in the right place. Before I conclude my message, I'd like to circle back to that weird question of why Nehemiah 5 is placed where it's at. Um, I know this is a very seminary student question, so you're just gonna have to like kind of go with it. I think it's very fascinating, but maybe you don't, but let's circle back to it real quick. It's interesting how chapters four and six are about external threats, about these frightening things that are happening, but suddenly, suddenly the mirror is flipped back on us in chapter five. Nehemiah 5 really just comes out of nowhere. But I think having Nehemiah 5 be between all these gradings, like these building stories stands for something very important. By putting Nehemiah 5 between all these great building stories, the book is refusing to relieve the tension between reform and moral relapse. They're always hand in hand. And by complicating the story of building the city of God, it forces us, the readers, to contemplate the realistic understanding of the life of faith. It's relapse and reform, relapse, reform, after another, after another, after another. Man, it's exhausting. Nehemiah is coming to build what was once destroyed, and he is trying to prevent another destruction. So let us not, Oak Church, build a wall around the same mess that existed before.